nothing changes nothing. I'm powerful enough to defeat two as well as one. Hello, hello, hello. This is me and my friend Pete, the podcast that explores all things the amazing Spider-Man. I'm your host, the mighty monologuing Motormouth. They call me Gerald. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If it isn't, welcome, 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 welcome back. This week, we're running through the amazing Spider-Man number 21. Where flies the beetle? If you haven't already, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash HSPP in the Key Keeper or High Council tiers where you gain access every week to a bonus episode of me and my friend Pete covering a comic book pulled from High Society's extensive vault collection chosen by you, the listeners. If you sign up before our season one finale, that's episode number 25, you'll receive a High Society lapel pin, but put it wherever you want. You know fashion is important here on me and my friend Pete and we want to be a part of yours. This week's bonus episode, we're back in Sarah Pazzini's world of incredibly weird shot rod stuff. Same cop, abolish him. New daughter, new circumstances, and two new power wielders shatter the once trio of the Angelus, the Witchblade, and the Darkness, turning three into more. That's Broken Trinity number one. That's later. Right now, we've got Betty and Pete and Dory and Johnny and Tears and Salt galore. We've got an endless loop of action. Spidey versus Beetle versus Torchy versus Spidey that'll leave your jaw on the floor. And we've got me. We've got you. We've got no further ado. We've got the amazing Spider-Man number 21. Where flies the Beetle? Guest starring the Human Torch. Me and my best friend Pete. Old adventures, new critiques. He spins webs, I spin yarns, kinda kooky, be forewarned, look out, it's me and my friend P. Before we get into it, we've got to pop a brief spotlight on Abner Ronald Jenkins, aka The Beetle. The Beetle first appeared in Strange Tales number 123. He's 5'11", 175 pounds on the weigh-in with brown eyes and brown hair. We don't have to dive into his entire history because up until this point, the Beetle wasn't around very long. This is only his second appearance in comic books. In his first, Abner Ronald Jenkins was a genius mechanic and engineer who, bored with his life and hoping to become more than he was, created a helmet resembling, you guessed it, a beetle that greatly augmented his strength. Thinking every beetle needs wings, he crafted a pair from steel and of course gave himself the gift of flight. Then, just for creepy value, he created a pair of gloves he called beetle grippers that functioned through, quote, Magna suction. All that done, he immediately turned to a life of crime, taking on the Human Torch, the Thing, and trigger-happy NYPD officers, probably Joe and Tomas, before the Torch and the Thing managed to take him down. It's a pretty great origin story, panel by panel, and worth a read if you can find it. If you need a refresher on the Human Torch, check out episode two of me and my friend Pete, JJ's Beef, where I did a spotlight on Marvel's first family for their first appearance in the first Amazing Spider-Man issue. That said, we're going to stick with the FF for our next section, other titles this month that Spidey appeared in. So in February of 1965, Spidey also showed up in Fantastic Four number 35, written by Stan Lee with art by the cornerstone of modern comics, Jack Kirby, inking by Sheik Stone, and lettering by art 
you know it's in the name Semek. If you're wondering why I never list an inker on ASM, Steve Ditko always drew an ink Spidey in those early days. He put a lot of who he was into the comic as an artist and person. If you've never seen an image of Steve Ditko as a youth, Google it and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Back to the Fantastic Four pay a visit to Mr. Fantastic and the Things alma mater, State University, which I believe goes on to become Empire State University. So they're at ESU, which has always seemed to me to be the NYU of the Marvel Universe. Benji's got the jocks carrying his bags. He's a sport legend here. Reed has all the young girls surrounding him. Sue the same with the young guys. And Johnny's surrounded by salt because these mature college girls don't want anything to do with the high school hothead. Of course, during their tour of the school, they meet Professor Gilbert, who's another Marvel scientist playing God. He says he's, quote, constructing a creature more powerful than anything that lives, including the Fantastic Four, for the purpose of research and analysis. <laughs> That's called rationalization, fella. Of course, Reed thinks the creature's ominous and looks like it's waiting for life so it can be a menace. Meanwhile, in Transylvania, a villain named Diablo, using his potions and herbs, has finally broken free from his prison beneath the earth where he was trapped by the Fantastic Four and teleports to America for revenge against the accursed Quartet. We ship back to America and ESU, where Ben and Johnny have literally run into each other before they figuratively run into the one and only Peter Parker. And the Goldenrod kid is stunting something fierce in a neon pink suit Lime green tie, brown shoes, and matching neon pink fedora. Close your eyes and imagine. Johnny asks what Pete's doing here, telling him he isn't giving out autographs today, and Pete replies, You couldn't beat me to take one of yours, bird brain. I came to see about enrolling for next year, but if you're gonna be here, forget it. Thing is like, whoa, hold up, only I talk to the torch that way. Johnny says Pete only talks tough because it makes him feel like a big man, knowing the torch can't attack a nobody like him. Pete thinks, Someday, you're gonna find out who this nobody really is, son, and you'll know it. Son him in his thoughts. Time passes, the whole football team plays against the thing who they call the best four-letter man stakes ever had. A four-letter man is a top athlete slash prospect in a school sporting division, usually in four different sports. Football, basketball, baseball, and track. Big Benji Grimm from Yancey Street is the GOAT in ESU. And he traded it all in to be a man of letters with multiple degrees and an ace pilot. You gotta love on Petunia's favorite nephew. Meantime, Diablo meets Professor Gilbert and brings his creation Dragon Man to life. Thing bursts in and Dragon Man gets right to work, hemming him up and beating him down. As Gilbert, the most naive doctor on earth, says that this isn't what he constructed the Dragon Man for. But how can he say that? He named the thing Dragon Man. That's an alias, not a name. He could have named him Tommy or Winston or Bobby, even Golem, because that's what it is. But no, he said Dragon Man. I don't believe you, doctor. And Dragon Man starts his campus rampage and the quarrelsome quartet springs into action. They try attacking first before the invisible woman takes over. She approaches the beast and soothes it, saying all creatures respond to kindness and sympathy. Diablo interferes, three out of the four Fantastic Fall, unconscious, and Johnny wakes them up, but Diablo has escaped with the Dragon Man. In the rematch, the FF bring the pain, causing Diablo to lose control of Dragon Man, who pounces on the villain, crashing through a frozen lake of his own design. The Thing, of course, goes in after them, and he's janked out by Mr. Fantastic before he drowns. Professor Gilbert says he'll keep a vigil, that if his creature ever returns, he'll be there to destroy it. The issue closes with Reed and Sue cutting out to a hidden lover's grove for some private time, and Reed tells her that the legend of the grove says any couple who holds hands while entering it will be married within a year. 
And Sue replies, the two holding hands outlined by a bush trimmed in the shape of a heart, that maybe she didn't realize it until right now, but it's always been Reed. This is almost an engagement. But how does the torch know our friend Pete Parker? Well, we've got to fire up the DeLorean and travel a couple of weeks into the past for the main episode. Right now! This one was deliciously written by smiling Stan Lee, deliriously illustrated by swinging Steve Ditko, and delightfully drawn by sparkling Sam Rosen. The cover of this one has the amazing Spider-Man written in Spidey New Roman, shade red with Spidey costume blue, beneath his name, on top of spiderwebs, in a white negative space. Swooping in from stage left to hover stage right, a scowl on his face, his whole body fiery red with orange flames surrounding him, the Long Island igniter himself, the Human Torch. He has a fireball in his right hand and is hurling another from his left, but he's flung one a moment before that struck a large gray billboard attached to the border of stage left. Hiding behind the billboard, the purple and green clad villain known as The Beetle. His back to us, he's wearing a purple domed helmet with small antenna poking from it. Giant green wings covered with large black spots. He has massive three-pronged hands, each long and spindly with sucker tips on each finger. And if he wasn't behind this billboard, he'd be hit square in the chest with the first fireball curled from the torch. But the torch wasn't aiming at the beetle. In the center of the page, a web line stretching from the bottom border gripped in his hands is Spider-Man, suited and booted. He's upside down holding his web line, arms above his body, his head facing stage right, staring at the torch. Spidey's right leg is bent, his left leg is kicked out in front of him, every muscle flexing, and he is dodging the second fireball tossed at him easily. But why is the torch aiming to kill? A caption box beneath the torch says, Another Marvel Super Spectacular, co-featuring the Human Torch and the Beetle, who says this isn't the Marvel Age of comics. So there are no answers here on this beautiful cover. We gotta get into it. Page one opens to the sign of the spider next to the title written in sky blue in a pink screen caption box. Where flies the beetle? Beneath it, we get a goldenrod banner. Guest starring the human torch. Beneath that, a den destroyed. Stage left, a shattered window, its curtain rod pulled from the wall. The orange curtain is on the floor near an overturned blue vase surrounded by teal and pink flowers near a downturned picture frame. Above the curtain, we got Spidey doing what he does best his body weight pressed on the fingertips of his right hand and a sideways planche on top of the curtain, he's throwing an up and undercut that cracks the beetle square in his purple armored chest. We get a look at the beetle from the front and he is a bizarre looking villain. I've described his helmet, but from front view, we see two pink goggle eyes on his dome mask, purple metallic armor running halfway down his chest and capping on his shoulders, green linen shirt sleeves, lower shirt and baggy pants. He's wearing a purple belt and purple boots and is bearing down on our hero with his bizarre, large, three-pronged, tentacled hands. In a screen caption box beneath the two combatants, we get another mighty milestone in this, the Marvel Age of Comics. We turn the page. Page two opens to a caption box. When a man has finished his prison term, he must be set free to take his place in society again. Even such a man as Abner Jenkins, better known to various law enforcement agencies as... The Beetle. Abner Jenkins got style. He's walking the lonely road from a high wall penitentiary in an SJB suit, red tie, slicked back red hair to match, and white sunnies with dark tints. He's got a large white bundle wrapped in twine under his right arm and another in his left hand at his side. And in the bundles, his Beetle costume as he monologues saying there's no crime against owning an armored costume, so the guards had to give it back to him. But this is either untrue or just the rules of the 616 universe because in our world, 
Parole boards put all types of asinine restrictions on the formerly incarcerated that make their lives exceedingly difficult to maneuver through upon their release. I know a person who, in New York City, isn't allowed to ride the subway because he was incarcerated for a crime that took place in the subway. Other people are not allowed to live in their homes with their families when probation ends. Again, in New York City, where marijuana has been decriminalized, those arrested for marijuana convictions before this decriminalization went into effect can't receive financial aid for college, despite programs like the Excelsior Scholarship that turns once expensive romps through higher learning into affordable goals for most New York undergraduates. People harp on a lot about recidivism rates of the formerly incarcerated, but don't talk about how certain laws by design, whether accidentally or intentionally, cut these people out from their chance to obtain a true second chance. The bills need paying, simple and plain, and if a person is not allowed to walk a path towards betterment with self-dignity and respect, well, those bills need paying, and they know how to get that money. You gotta make the donuts, and you can't do that on dimes. I don't advocate for crime, I advocate for dignity. And if you refuse a person that dignity, you have to understand most people are going to do what they have to to obtain it themselves. Back to. So Jenkins gets to keep his gear, and he hasn't even gotten 100 feet from the precinct before he's getting suited and booted in a nearby wood. He thinks he's been dreaming of a rematch with the torch since he battled the Long Island Igniter high above the city months back in Strange Tales number 123. A short time later, as a typical teenage couple walk through the streets of New York, or are they really so typical? And they're not typical at all. Standing in front of a newspaper stand, we've got Doris Evans in a V-collared blouse and skirt in sunbeam yellow with matching clutch. She's got a sandy brown bob working, a part right down the middle of her hair, and she's a step behind Jonathan Lowell Spencer Storm himself. He's in a green sport coat, a red and black checkered collared shirt, his blonde hair parted on the left side, and he's reading a newspaper. Doris tells Johnny she enjoyed the time they had together today, that he acted quiet and normal before seeing Johnny's head jerk back in alarm. She asks what's wrong, and Johnny says, it's the Beatle. He's been released. Doris says, so what? That has nothing to do with Johnny. But Johnny's already made up his mind, and as smoke envelops him, Doris shouts, but that doesn't concern you. He'll probably fade into obscurity and, oh no. Not again! As Johnny shouts, FLAME ON! He apologizes to Doris, but says the beetle is definitely salty, and he's going to be more dangerous than ever now. Johnny says he's going to search the city, and flies off, leaving his main squeeze with her left hand to her forehead in front of the newsstand. Meanwhile, in a quiet suburban neighborhood in Forest Hills, we find another typical teenager, about as typical as Johnny Storm. And we get the goldenrod kid Peter Parker sitting at his desk in his bedroom, Desk lamp on, books open, papers and pen on said desk, studying. He's in a white collared shirt, the top button undone, sleeves rolled up, and his standard SJB slacks. And he's massaging his lower back. Of course, he's monologuing. He says he's been studying too long and his back is stiff. But no worries, he's got the perfect way to get the kinks out. In seconds, he gets suited, he gets booted, and is one-handed leapfrogging a chimney. Left hand, if you're wondering. High above the city on his way to who knows where, screaming. Mm, boy, this sure beats doing push-ups all hollow. Three opens the Spidey crouch horizontally on a sheer wall, stage left, above a crowd of people who have just spotted him. A guy in a green suit, red tie, points up at the webhead, screaming. Look, up there, it's Spider-Man. This guy's with crowd reaction shot legend Deb in her red dress and matching pillbox hat. A man in a sandy brown suit, and another man in a purple suit and black turtleneck. A man's got swagger. Spidey thinks, oh, I've been spotted. And everybody makes tracks except for Deb. Spidey sprints up the side of the building, 
Green Suit screams for everyone to run because they don't know what the spider will do next, while Tansu wonders aloud why no one is calling the police. Spidey, leaping to the roof of an adjacent building, screams, Rats! I'm upon as well loved by my fellow citizens as J. Edgar Hoover is by the Mafia! I gave my rundown on and not-so-humble opinion of J. Edgar Hoover in the episode covering ASM number 14, The Grotesque Adventure of the Green Goblin. That's just deserts here on me and my friend Pete. In summation, he was a piece of hot rod. But I was talking about trash. Back to Spidey crouches on a nearby building, spotting the human torch racing past in the air, both arms out in front of him. And we get another crowd reaction shot. This one, we have a beautifully drawn group of people. All white, as usual. Officer Blackman was such a long time ago, it seems. A woman in a brown turtleneck and pink hair with cherry red lips and high cheekbones. A guy with curly brown hair and a black suit and green tie with slits for eyes. An older gentleman in a brown pinstripe suit and matching fedora. And an auburn-haired guy, SJB blazer and tie, green shirt. The woman screams for them to look up as the torch races by. Bowtie says he's always wanted to see the torch in real life. And Black Suit puts a hand to his mouth and shouts for the torch to do a few tricks for them. Torchy, king of hamming it up and always showing love to his fans, thinks since he hasn't found the beetle, I might as well put on a little exhibition for my fans. And creates a heart made of fire, flying through it as the crowd looks on in awe. The L.I.I. loves his fans. Spidey, left hand on his waist, right on the ledge in front of him on the building, stares at the torch and you know there's salt spilling all over the rooftop. Boy, if that doesn't take the cake. I appear in the city and people run from the hills. But that flaming freak shows up and they knock themselves out falling all over him. And in the final panel, as the crowd cheers Torch's name and he tells them he's got to get back to work, the beetle hasn't stopped working. And in the shadow of a building, he stalks the Torch thinking, Ah! I found him at last. Now to silently follow him while I decide how to deal with him. I cannot get over the Beatles hands. They're amazingly weird and off-putting. I love them. Carl Burgos, the artist who created him, was working on this character design. And fun fact, Carl Burgos also created the original Golden Age Human Torch. So shout out through the ether to a foundational creator. Back to Johnny flies around a little longer but decides to head home before his flames give out on him. Meanwhile, the beetle is still tracking the torch without the igniter's knowledge. All that power and no Spidey sense? How sad. And speaking of Spidey, he's on a blank billboard behind the beetle in this very moment. So much obliviousness in this panel. Spidey's thinking, salty as ever. I might as well head back home. I have more important things to do than watch that blazing bird bring plane to the crown. The jealousy is real. Johnny heads to Dory's house to meet up with her. He flames off and walks through her front door shouting that Dory Doll's dreamboat is back. But Dory, her arms folded in the foreground, her caption box dripping stalactite, asks who invited him. And Johnny, as self-centered as they come, asks if Dory's upset because he flamed on and flew away for a while. Dory doesn't turn around to answer, but she lets him have it. She says why should she be mad? That she loves having a date descend into her boyfriend making a silly smoking spectacle of himself. She's alliteration angry. Johnny says, but, but no. Dory runs a hand through her hair, says no buts, that she wants a boyfriend, not a blazing juvenile show-off in a silly costume. Called his Fantastic Four costume silly. Johnny asks for one more chance. He begs for one more chance. And Dory finally turns around to face Johnny. Left hand jabbing at his chest, right on her hips. She snaps. Very well then, I'll give you a chance. If you can spend a full 24 hours without flaming on, even once, I'll make believe this never happened. But if you turn into the human torch again, and Johnny says fine and makes the promise, Dory, her back to him once more, hands on hips, says very well. Johnny's got one more chance, but if he even whispers flame on, he can use the flames to torch her number. 
Johnny, exasperated, replies, It's a deal, love of my life. But what did they feed you when you were a baby? Nails? Imagine thanking Dory's tough as nails for demanding the respect from the most impetuous of young heroes. Oblivious, thy name is Lowell. Outside of it, the beetle, his three-pronged suction cup hands helping him cling to the sheer outer wall of the house, leers into the window. And Beetle's been plotting. I seen enough. Now I know what to do. Still clinging to the wall of the house to open page five, Beetle thinks the torch seems to care for that girl. So that's how I'll get my revenge on him. By using Doris Evans. As for Spider-Man, he continues on his way home, growing more miserable every minute. In Spidey's upside down in his signature descending a web line pose, he spots a group of dock workers loading a truck and hoping to bolster his popularity, asks the guys if they need a hand. One of them turns and presses up against the giant crate behind him, panicked, screaming for his friend Sam to call the police. And Spidey's like, all right, enough. This is ridiculous. Webbing away from the scene in a final panel, he lets his frustrations out above the city we know and love. That doesn't. I couldn't win a popularity contest even if I was the only one entered. Nuts! That's what he says. Nuts! The next day opens to one Doris Evans in a sun-yellow dress and blouse with a leopard print collar and belt, a yellow band in her hair, and white debutante gloves. And Dory be shopping, Dory be shopping. She's on Fifth Avenue with four boxes of assorted sizes in her hands. She says it's hard to think about shopping while she's wondering if Johnny is keeping his promise when she's bowled over in the next panel. A kid named Tommy smashes into her on his way to catch his friend who's just run past with his football. Another kid, a step behind Tommy, shouts, Watch out, lady! She calls them monsters, telling them to watch where they're going, her packages and clutch bag flying out of her hands and arms. The next panel, Doris is raging about her dropped packages with her hands on her hips and back to us in a red negative space. When a hand picks up one of the packages, the person's voice from off panel says, May I help you, miss? And of course, the Goldenrod Kid has picked up all of her packages in the next panel. He's in his Goldenrod Kid outfit, vest, SJB suit, red tie, widow's extra peaky. Handing her packages back to her, he says he wasn't able to warn her about the children in time, but hey, he's picked them all up, so no harm, no foul. And Dory thanks the Goldenrod Kid and calls him kind. Pete says it was a pleasure, of course, and tells her to be careful not to drop them again. Dory, walking away, but looking over her shoulder at Pete, thinks, What a nice, sweet, gentlemanly boy. Gentlemen, thy name is Parker. But Pete isn't done being a good Samaritan. In the final panel, with the camera shifted from the ground up so we're staring up at our hero, we see Dory's wallet on the curb. Pete spotted the wallet too, and of course he thinks he should return it to her. He checks the information in the brown wallet to open page six and figures he's got some free time now, so he's going to drop it off to Doris Evans. And so, we're at the sky blue front door of Dory. A smile on her face as Pete holds her wallet out to her. She is super excited and says she has to give Pete a reward. But Pete wasn't thinking about a reward. He says, Don't be silly. I was glad to do it. Helping because he can. Great power. You already know the rest. Dory says, All right, no reward, but at least let me get you a Coke. Pete's like, Okay, cool. And they enter the house. The next panel, they're sitting in Dory's living room. Pete on a one-seater, Dory on a poof, both with glasses of Coke in their hands. And Pete's letting Dory know about his life. Yes. I live with my aunt in a small private house a short distance from here. Dory's feeling the kid. She thinks, he's so quiet, so soft-spoken, and gentlemanly. He's a science major at school, and he's so cultured and down-to-earth. If only Johnny were more like Peter Parker. But she doesn't know that Pete's been here before, and when he was, she didn't like him one bit. That was the second story of ASM number 8 titled, Spidey Tackles the Torch. That's two infinities, or 88 here on me and my friend Pete. A tale where Spidey gatecrashed the party being thrown by Doris and Johnny. Back then, she thought Spidey was being a jerk 
and he was, to be fair, and all over the Sandman. But Pete doesn't remember the losses he takes in these stories, and after Torch handed him his bum on a silver platter in issue 8, I'm sure Spidey's erased everything about Dory Evans from his mind. He finishes his soda, grabs his green textbook, and heads home. Minutes later, things get even more involved as Johnny Storm arrives at Doris's house just in time to see the departure of Peter Parker. And Johnny, in his young hot rod mode, pulls up to Dory's house in a gorgeous orange convertible with the top down in an olive suit and black collared shirt. He spots Pete and wonders who the kid is leaving Dory's house. And Pete's not worried at all. He's got a hand in his pocket as he strolls down the street. He's whistling. He's chilling. He reaches the corner, passing a man in a firm green suit and brown fedora with red sunglasses who's lighting a cigarette. Meanwhile, Johnny enters the house. We see he's wearing green slacks, and he tells Dory that it's been half a day, 12 hours exactly, since he flamed on, so he's well on his way to keeping his promise. He jerks his thumb over his shoulder toward the door, asking who the fellow was that just left. And Dory, thinking to herself that this is the chance to make Johnny more of a gentleman, gives Johnny her back in the foreground. Dory never looks this man in the eye and answers his question. His name is Peter Parker, Johnny. He's a student at Midtown High, and he's just the nicest boy. He's interested in politics, science, and current events. And Johnny's pissed. He says, well, goody gumdrops. Goody gumdrops indeed. For Pete, the camera shifts, and now Johnny is in the foreground, a shaking fist as Dory continues. It wouldn't do you any harm to take a leaf from his book, Johnny Storm. It would be wonderful if some of his poise and polish were to rub off on you. Ladies and gentlemen, the poised and polished Peter Parker. Johnny thinks, oh, brother. While outside Doris's house again, the man in the brown fedora and red sunnies flicks his cigarette in a gorgeous panel, radiating cool. Panel of the week? We'll see. While he's flicking the cigarette towards the left border of the panel, he is monologuing, giving the game away. This man is the Beatle, and he's outside of Dory's house right now, hiding in plain sight. A lot of Spidey's villains are so egomaniacal, they can't get away with a move like this because they never wear masks. But the Beatle is not a Spidey villain. On page 7, Pete is with the damsel, never in distress, Betty Brant, who is wearing a red blazer and matching skirt with a frilly collared black blouse and matching clutch. They're window shopping right now outside of a pet store, a cute puppy stealing their hearts in the window, when someone shouts from off panel, Parker, I want to see you. Pete turns to see none other than Johnny Storm in his full body SJB Fantastic Four suit. Johnny, his superpower right now being jealousy, thinks he's glad he wore the costume to impress Peter Parker. I imagine most teenagers would be intimidated seeing the blonde fireball walking towards them, the four iconic on his chest. This kid's faced off against Dr. Doom for upstairs sakes. He's a big deal, but so has Pete, and he didn't have a trio behind him. One man versus the Lotvarian Lion. That's Amazing Spider-Man number five, marked for destruction by Dr. Doom. Or the Golden Liability, always another day here on Me and My Friend Pete, an action-packed thrill ride. Either way, Johnny thinks impressed, but means intimidate, I'm sure. He asks Pete if he recognizes him and suns him real quick, calling him Kid. Pete replies, sure, either you're the Human Torch or some jerk walking around in his pajamas, or maybe both. Pete Parker, master of the clapback, and Johnny snaps, jabbing his finger at Peter. He screams, skip the wisecrack, skinny. I just want to warn you, Doris Evans is my gal friend, and I hope you're not dumb enough to think you can beat my time. Spidey thinks he'll be a spiderweb string bean and is shocked the L.I.I. is jealous of him. I love his facial expression. He's got his left eyebrow raised and his mouth open. He can't believe this, but I can. That's the goldenrod kid, the clapback king from Forest Hills, Queens. If Doris is feeling him, I know why. That's Pete Betty Brant Ned Leeds. Pete Doris Evans Johnny Storm. 
Peteless Alan Flash Thompson, bringing Pete's love triangle madness to three, a triptych of love entanglements. And speaking of the Brand X kid, he walks up with the Foolsville faithful while Pete and Johnny go back and forth. He asks his crew, Hey, look guys, isn't that the Human Torch talking to Puny Parker? Betty has her hand to chin level, full cheek, a tear already falling from her left eye, both eyes wide and mouth ajar in shock. As she thinks, he's telling Peter to stay away from some other girl, and I never even suspected. Every time she turns around, Pete's nose is in the air sniffing. But this is just poor cosmic timing, Betty. Believe me. But she won't. She walks past Pete in her next panel, her back to us, head down, now in tears, thinking she might as well leave because Pete doesn't care about her anyway. Pete tries to get her to wait, but Betty's not listening. And watching his girl Friday walk off, he rounds on the human torch with fury in his eyes. You brainless, swell-headed, loudmouth jerk! Who do you think you're shooting off your gap at? And Johnny is taken aback, his only reply being, Huh? As Pete continues, You may be a big brain superhero to everyone else, but to me, you're just a knuckle-headed pain in the neck. Get the message? Called him knuckle-headed. Johnny with an expression like, I thought everybody was drinking the juice. Thinks he didn't expect this, and he can't even put hands on Pete because it wouldn't be a fair fight. It wouldn't be fair for you, Johnny, my boy. Pete's the one who can't turn his powers off. Meanwhile, Flash and company are watching this little thing. A red-haired kid and his crew says he didn't believe Parker had such guts. A sandy kid says maybe he's not really a panty waist. But Flash doesn't believe that at all. As Pete walks away, Flash says a member of the Fantastic Four can't go around beating up nobodies. Unaware of the irony of his words because that's why Pete does his best not to fight Flash Thompson. Johnny hands on his hips and back to us watching Pete, you can say it, storm off. Wonders what Dory sees in a zero like Pete. Being kind and thoughtful along with toughness and confidence go a long way. And sadly, a lot of young men don't heed this lesson. Flash and Torch share the same mindset now that I'm looking at them side by side. Maybe that's why Torchy and Spidey don't get along. Because despite Johnny Storm's heroics, he's a bit insensitive. We turn the page and we're on... The Infinity, the Infinity, Infinity, Infinity Page. Page 8. Just in time to witness Flash Thompson's insecurity spill over as he leans on the side of a building telling his friends to watch him because he's going to prove Peter Parker isn't so tough. He screams towards Johnny who's walking towards us but away from the Foolsville faithful. Why don't you take a lesson from Spider-Man, Torchy? He wouldn't have let anyone talk to him like that. Proving Flash has no idea who Spider-Man really is, Spidey shows restraint almost every issue dealing with the Brand X kid. Oh, the irony! As Johnny thinks he'd better leave now because these kids from Forest Hills are out of control, taunting him. Pete catches up to Betty near a construction site, telling her he can explain the situation with the Human Torch. But Betty needs time. She says there's nothing to explain, and she'd like to go home now. And as Betty disappears around the corner, Pete, leaning on a pile of gray brick in the next panel with his head down, is pissed. He says he knows the Torch didn't mean it, but it's still that miserable matchstick's fault. His temper flaring, he clutches two bricks in his hand on the pile in the red negative space saying, I couldn't even have the satisfaction of fighting with him, of wiping that conceited smirk off his face before crushing the bricks into dust easily. He'd never fight with Peter Parker because, letting the dust and chunks fall from his hands, he continues, he'd think I'm too weak for him. His anger relieved for the moment, he puts his hands in his pockets and continues down the street saying he's not going to make a mountain out of a molehill. Betty is going to forgive him eventually, and a torch can go fry for all he cares. But Pete's not above a little revenge. The camera zooms in on his face, and in a pink negative space, his baby blues popping, he wonders why shouldn't he have a little fun with the human torch. That if the LII is this jealous of Peter Parker, and in less than a second, Spidey's suited and booted. All he needs is the gloves as he finishes his monologue. 
How would he feel if Spider-Man made a play for his gal? The poor guy will explode. And I'd like to see that windbag trying to threaten me now. Let's see that intimidation against someone who isn't a quote-unquote zero. But even as Spidey prepares to visit Doris Evans again, the Beatles got his own plans. Suited and booted himself, he's back outside of that window of Dory's house, his tentacle fingers gripping the sheer wall, stalking the girl in the sun-kissed dress, waiting for the human torch to show up. Nine opens to Spidey dropping down on the scene. The scene? Dory's house, side lawn, as the beetle, rising up above the roof on his giant spotted wings, sees our hero. Thinking he can't let Spidey destroy his best laid plans, he swoops down on the webhead, ramming his creepy hands into Spider-Man's stomach, who screams, Holy smoke! Now what have I blundered into? Beetle lifts the webhead above his head, and Spidey's in full-on exposition mode now. The Beetle! The torture's old enemy! I've seen your picture in the paper! But, what? Beetle replies, Save your breath, mister! This isn't 20 questions! And he's right! This ain't 20 questions! This is a showdown! And Beetle gets right to it. Hurling our hero towards a leafy oak tree planted in Dory's yard, he screams that the impact will knock Spidey out long enough to get his project done. His project being attacking the torch. But Beetle's got problems in the now. Because Spidey, curious little bug that he is, flying through the air towards certain impact with the tree, says he's just got interested in Beetle's project. And twisting in the air, agility, magnificent as usual, he lands on the trunk of the tree screaming oh. that now he's going to hang around and find out what Beetle's project is. Pushing off the tree with his right foot, he lunges at the purple and green clad big bug. Ha! But the beetle is locked in. He jumps over the diving hero, his wings activating, and grips Spidey's back with his suction cupped hands. Spidey, his arms out wide in front of him, screams, I thought those metal wings were just ornaments. But just my luck, the beetle can really fly. But this doesn't make sense, Spidey. You face Dr. Octopus, his arms worked, the vulture, whose wings worked, and the scorpion, whose tail worked. Why would you assume the beetle's wings don't work? I mean, granted, Craven's lion head vest doesn't work, but that's like one out of everything, and his name isn't the lion. Assume villains aren't interested in fashion when they're throwing their outfits together, except the fanciest Daniel, of course. Well, that was supposed to go without saying, but here we are. Back to Beetle, back on his feet now, lifts Spidey over his head to open page 10, screaming that now he's not going to be gentle. He's going to slam Spidey into the ground like a sack of potatoes. Spidey splayed out above the villain's head. He's not talking, he's thinking. And he thinks that when the Beetle tries to slam him, he's going to be in for a little surprise. And webs the bottom tips of both the villain's giant wings that are scraping against the ground. When Beetle tries to slam Spidey, who's still gripping the webbing, he flips feet over wing and lands on his head. And Spidey... He lands on both feet, no worries. A-O-B-E. Beetle fights to his feet, but Spidey's on him in a second, leaning into a left hand that catches Beetle on the extra thick purple armor on his chest. His fist bounces off with a loud poing. As Spidey thinks, this guy's no sense to beat. That armor he's wearing must be two inches thick. The Beetle knows what world he's in. All these superpowered heroes, he's gotta be able to take a punch. And he's not afraid to give as good as he gets. Unable to bend his fists and his spindly fingered gloves, he screams, Oh, I neglected to mention, my wings are offensive weapons as well as defensive, but I guess you're beginning to realize that. And slams his right wing into Spidey, knocking the web head off balance. Spidey goes agility on best ever, trying to leapfrog the beetle with his arms and legs wide, but the beetle is no slouch. Beneath Spidey, he stretches his own arms and legs wide and slams his wings into Spidey's gut. Beetle is a hands team tactician. Spidey lands on his feet on the final panel of this page, huh. and he's had it. He screams, okay, you overgrown moth. 
You had your innings. Now I'll furnish a little of the entertainment. Beetle told Spidey to save his breath because he won't have it much longer. Translation? Bring it! Don't say it! Shout out to Ken Shamrock. Meanwhile, it was only a matter of time before Dory realized there was a fight going down on her lawn. Get off my lawn! Her hands pressed against the glass of her window, wide-eyed in shock, staring at the back of Spider-Man's head. She thinks she's gotta make a phone call. And on the other side of the city, Johnny Storm is lounging alone on his orange love seat in Fantastic Four headquarters. One arm draped on the armrest, the other over a cushion, his fist propping his head up. He is comfortable when the phone rings, and he's in a bad mood. He thinks the way his luck is going, it's probably someone calling to sue. But when he picks up, the panel shifts back to the Evans house, and we get Dory in distress. Phone pressed against her ear, she screams. Johnny, thank heaven I reached you. You've got to flame on and get here right away. I, I'm in danger. <laughs> but Johnny's not having it. Sitting up in the love seat, his right knee propping up his right elbow, phone pressed against his ear, a smug smile on his face at his girlfriend's panicked voice. He says there's no way she's going to get him to flame on. That Dory said 24 hours, and he's got 11 to go by his count. This kid lives in a universe where literally every 30 days he's in a fight with either a new villain or a rogue, and he thinks that Dory's kidding him. Why is that a chance he's willing to take? Especially since Dory doesn't seem the type to joke about him being the torch because she hates when he flames on. But Johnny's proven to be a little dim here. He grabs a pink throw pillow, throws it behind his head, and tucking his left arm behind it, stretches out on the couch as Dory continues her panicked screams. Oh no, I'm not fooling. I need you, Johnny. You must believe me. Smiling with his eyes closed, he replies, Sure, honey, sure. I believe you. You never try to kid me. And Dory, her face in mortified shock, Listens to Johnny who says, Well, I'll bet there are a couple of big bad feelings outside of your window right now. Who are they, Dory? Spider-Man and Doctor Doom? You're almost there, but Spidey's not a villain, you jerk. And Dory pleads. She says, Johnny, listen. But he can't. So full of hot air is Sifu Hot Rod, he continues, smug as a snug bug in a rug. I have to hang up now, baby. The big bad wolf is trying to blow my door down. See you around. And bangs it on Dory, who blames his thick-headedness on herself for always criticizing him. As Johnny, both hands behind his head, a Hoovian smile on his face, says he likes a gal with a sense of humor. With Dory trapped in the house, we shift our focus back to Spidey. And Spidey, feet overhead to open page 12, has just pulled the second play from the Golden Liability Playbook. If fists don't work, there's always the shooters. And he sprays webbing from both hands towards the Beatles' wings, thinking if the villain can't use those as weapons, he won't have a chance. The guy can't use his hands as weapons, so Spidey's right. But Beetle flexes his wings and the webbing snaps as if it weren't there at all. Spidey's not deterred though. Refusing to let Beetle get airborne, he lunges at the overgrown insect, probably thinking, if shooters don't work, there's always the fists. And connects with a left that sends both combatants flying through the den window of Dory's home. Spidey thinks he's got the Beetle now, screaming. Here's when you get your wings clenched, chum. And Dory is frozen in shock. The two masked men in between her and the phone call to the police she is desperate to make. She wonders what she can do as Beetle, hovering above Dory's sky blue sofa, swipes at Spidey saying, You ruined my whole plan. You'll pay for that. Spidey, throwing an uppercut with his left that bounces off the purple armor of the Beetle's chest, replies that he's a little short on cash at the moment and asks Beetle to charge it to the game. But now Beetle's the one who's not talking. He's thinking about the fight. He presses the suctions of his left hand onto a tweed armchair and hurls it at the webhead with an ottoman above his head in his right hand, prepared to throw that next. Spidey, trying not to be the golden liability in Dory's home, didn't he break through her window? That was unavoidable. Catches the armchair and sets it down, screaming for the beetle to tell him his plan while thinking he wishes he felt more confident because the armor this guy's wearing is giving him real 
problems. While not too far away, we find Johnny Lowell getting fashionable. Staring at himself in a mirror, he's wearing brown slacks, belt, and an Italian fitting button-up shirt. That's slim fit. Fashion on? Fantastic. He's buttoning his shirt, smiling at his reflection, and monologuing something fierce. Well, now that Dory has had her little laugh of the day, I guess I'll mosey over and pay her a visit. Sliding his blazer on in a neon pink negative space, he continues. She sure is a great gal, even if she does have that nutty prejudice against costume crime fighters. But at that particular moment, another costume crime fighter would look mighty good to the young lady in question. Dory is hugging herself, watching Spider-Man and Beetle destroy her den, wondering when it'll end, wishing she could get to that telephone. This is a weirdly placed panel because Spidey's legs are in the background outside of the window, making me wonder if this piece was puzzled in here and wouldn't be more in place on page 11 or 12, just before the two men came crashing through her window, but here it is, so let's get back to Spidey, agility on. Oh, now you're just showing off. His left hand flat against the floor, supporting his body weight. I call it the drizzy maneuver because we've seen it so many times, it's gotta have a name, and since he's on one, it's only right. So Spidey's in the drizzy maneuver, huh. left hand supported, ha. and throwing an up and undercut with his right, knocking the three-pronged right hand of the beetle away from his body. Beetle, realizing Spidey's the real deal, thinks he's gotta change tactics and his new strategy is simple. He's going for the girl. And leaping over the outstretched Spider-Man, he breaks for Dory. Grabbing her up, he says she'll make the perfect hostage and grabs a sprinting Dory around the shoulders as she screams for both men to stay away from her. Spider-Man, back on his feet, is poised to strike, but he doesn't move. I dare not attack the Beetle while he's with Doris. Can't take a chance of her being injured. Beetle, knowing he just put the kibosh on the golden liability's heroism, wraps his left arm around Dory, telling Spidey, I think you're bright enough to realize that I now hold the winning card, Spider-Man, so don't try to stop us from leaving. And Dory's like, us? You got a mouse in your pocket? You can't take me with you? But Beetle proves in seconds that's a lie. Wrapping her in his left arm, he swoops out of the front door screaming. On the contrary, my dear, I can and I will. With you accompanying me, there is still a chance of me baiting a trap for the human torch. And Dory's like, this is what all this is about? Revenge? How unoriginal. As Spidey, standing in the doorframe, thinks he can't let the villain get away. He springs into action immediately, leaping onto the top huh. of a lamppost in one leap and spraying a web line from his left hand. His Spidey sends a blaze. He thinks he's lucky. The beetle's wings are too heavy for the villain to fly very fast, so Spidey should be able to track him with his Spidey sense. And we've got the Tom and Jerry. Translation, the chase is on. But a few seconds after our little cast of characters has vacated the house, Johnny Storm arrives, only to find. Johnny is standing in the middle of the upturned house, a strand of Spidey webbing clutched in his fist, and he is pissed off. He now realizes Dory was calling him for help, for real, and he dropped the ball. In no time, he shouts, Flame on! And takes to the skies, knowing whatever just happened in Dory's apartment, Spider-Man is involved. And Johnny's going to get to the bottom of it. He spots Spidey clinging to the sheer wall of a building close to its rooftop, and lets fly with no less than five fireballs, screaming, Hold it, you web-spinning creep. Where's my girlfriend? What's happened to Dory? But Spidey dodges all of them, no sweat broken, and descends towards the earth in a broken form dive, thinking, He must have come from Doris's house. He thinks I'm responsible. Ow! Those blank fireballs are coming too close for comfort. I've got to do something. It's a bit of a long fall to be sure to get all those thoughts in. He dodges three more torch-thrown fireballs and snagging an empty flagpole with a web line from his right hand, he catapults up and over the torch and crafting three bowlers. Those are ropes with heavy balls on both ends used for hunting. I use them in Red Dead Redemption with violent accuracy. That's what Spidey's just crafted. From his web shooters, he tosses all three at the human matchstick, shouting, 
Heads up, Torchy. You're not the only bushling pitcher around here. Here's an asbestos wet ball to chew on for a while. Stan the man had baseball on his mind. Heavy in this one, folks. The bowlers hit the torch, tying up his arms and torso, and Spidey hopes they'll stall him long enough for him to pick up the trail of the beetle. But the torch is, you can say it, heated. In the final panel, he goes supernova immediately. Above the city we know and love, melting all trace of the webbing away in the fiery blink of an eye. Spidey, his spidey sense blazing like the human inferno behind him, realizing he'll be a pile of ashes if the torch connects with one blow, activates beach defensive infinity. Translation, run! His goal, to get the torch to chase him. And it doesn't seem like the torch needs any motivation in this regard at all. Page 15 opens to the torch and Spidey working. Torch is tossing heat and Spidey, his left foot on the very edge of a ledge, has crafted two rackets out of webbing and is smacking the fireballs back at the hot-handed hurler, screaming, stick with me, hot stuff, and you'll find out. Here, have your fireballs back. You may need them again. Pete, you can say it, Sampras indeed. Torch tries to close the distance between him and Spidey, but Spidey is in his bag now. He clings to the sheer wall of the building and unloads sheer webbing at the human torch with both shooters. Torchy is fighting against the webbing, but that's what he gets for getting so close. I better get ready to hightail it out of here now before he explodes. That boy is mad. Big mad. And on the final panel of this three panel page, we get the panel of the week. Torch, stage left, ain't in his bag. He is the Birkin. All right, Big Mouth, you ask for it. When I'm through with you, there won't be enough of you left to shake a spider at I'm through handling you with kid gloves. He tosses two fireballs, an overhand left, an underhand right, and to make sure Spidey can't dodge them, creates two large intersecting rings of fire larger than both of them and sends those at the webhead. Not done yet, he tries to send a straight jet of fire from his left hand at Spider-Man. But Spidey ain't slacking either. Upside down in a seated position, his right leg bent, his left leg extended out in front of him, he's going double barrel again, forcing the jet of fire back towards the human torch, thinking he got what he wanted. The torch is chasing him. Now, all he has to do is lift through it. Spidey races onto the background of page 16, his Spidey sense humming, the torch a shooting star behind him, stage right. Spidey's thinking he's glad he's finally caught up with Beetle. And stage left, in the foreground, Said Beetle is chugging along, Dory in his grip, begging him not to drop her. And Beetle's not letting that happen. He says, Not a chance, kid. You're too valuable to me. Meanwhile, Spidey's just left <sighs> from a high ledge and landed on a handstand, dodging a loop-de-looping human torch who hurls another fireball. This guy is throwing all of the fireballs. Torch shouts that Spidey's fast, but he's getting the distance now, so it's only a matter of time before Spidey falls to the Long Island Igniter. But on the slim chance that somebody may buy our Spidey mag to see J. Jonah Jameson instead of our web spinner in action, here he is, just for a sec. And J.J. is in the foreground, SJB pants, white button-up green tie, cigar in his left hand, and he's screaming. Miss Brent, where in Sam Hell is Peter Parker? He hasn't brought me any unusual crime photos in days. Miss Brent, who's in a sequin red turtleneck, blouse with a black frilly necklace, she says she doesn't know where he is. And Jameson gets all in her business. Standing over her desk as she sorts a folder, he screams. What do you mean you don't know? You're his girlfriend, aren't you? Although I can't see why. And Betty says she hasn't seen him that much either lately. Jameson, lamenting teenagers angrily, says he's leaving for the day and slams the door on his way out. Without photos from his demon reporter, he's got nothing to put into the extras. Betty, rummaging through the folder, pulls a picture of Peter Parker staring down at him. She's thinking, although perhaps I'm being unfair to Peter. Maybe there's an explanation. It... 
it's possible. It's not possible. It's what it is. She picks up the phone thinking she'll give the goldenrod kid a tumble so he can explain himself. But Pete's out fighting for his life, so number two gets number one on the line. The one and only Mae Parker in a light brown full-length dress and white apron. She's got the duster in her hand doing some housework. Betty says hello and asks if Mae's nephew is around, and Mae says no, that she hasn't seen him since the morning, and Betty takes this as the worst kind of sign. She hangs up the phone, leaving Mae holding the line, and according to Mae, she thought she heard a sob. Betty is crying again, but this time she has no proof. Hanging up on her end of the line, she says, what a fool I was, hoping for the impossible. Of course there's no explanation. Peter is probably out with her right now. And in a very remote sense, Betty Brand is right. Beetle drops Dory onto the roof of an abandoned building, but he's SOL on his plan now, because who's just dropped onto the scene? The Marvel Tag Team Supreme. All one, Human Torch. All one, Spider-Man. And their misunderstanding is done. Spidey rushes towards Beetle while Torch checks in with Dory. She thinks heavens that he's here and he tells her to take it easy. Calls her dollface and says everything's a-okay. As Spidey, overhearing as he rushes into battle, thinks, Boom! If Torchy has any faults, one of them sure isn't a lack of confidence. And he's right. The kid is brash and arrogant, but he's a bone crusher for sure. Translation? Never scared. Torch gets right to work. He flies around the corner of the building, following the beetle, hurling fireballs. As Beetle thinks, This empty condemned building isn't the site I've chosen for my showdown battle with the torch, but I can't get choosy now. I'll duck through this window and try to finish him off when he follows me in, before Spider-Man can interfere. But Spidey's already running interference. He drops in through a hole in the ceiling as the Beetle soars into the room, screaming, Tense, tense, don't you ever knock before entering? Beetle shouts his name, then Beetle gets busy. He lands, puts his suction cupped hands on the sheer wall, and rips a giant chunk from it. Spidey thinks like paper. Beetle says he can beat two heroes as easily as one, hurling it across the room at Spidey. But you know Spidey's agility is on best ever. He leaps straight up, ha! avoiding the wall easily, but the torch, as clumsy as ever, flies around the corner at this precise moment. Spidey screams, Look out, torch! As the wall slams into the back of the Long Island igniter. On 18, the beetle zigs around the human torch, zags around the spider, and flies through two doorways, trying to get himself some breathing room. For a person who said he could take both of these heroes head on, he's sure moving like he can't. He is booking it right now. Spidey shouts he's going after him and leaps onto a sheer wall because you know he doesn't run on the ground. The Torch thinks he is too, his way, and flies out of the hole in the wall created by the Beetle. The torch catches up to the Beetle first, swooping through a door in the next panel where the Beetle's got his hands suctioned to the ceiling. Torch talks his smack. Surprise, Beetle. You might be able to outfly Spider-Man, but never the Human Torch. And Beetle says, Stay where you are, because I want to remember you that way. And if you haven't noticed, Stan tends to lean on certain lingo. Right now, he's big on people staying in one place so they can be remembered. We're going to call this the snapshot phrase, first seen in ASM number 8, the terrible threat of the living brain, or two infinities, written as 88 here on me and my friend Pete. Get it? Back to. But as the beetle pulls down a section of plaster ceiling with which to snuff out the torch's flame, a nimble, lift-muscled figure comes hurtling through the opening. And we get a beautiful long horizontal. The beetle, stage right, airborne, tossing a chunk of ceiling towards the torch. The torch with a look of shock on his face, airborne as well. Stage left with a fireball in his left hand. His right hurling one towards the center of the page to meet the ceiling chunk flying towards him. And the golden liability, falling through the top of the ceiling, stomping down on the chunk of plaster to save the torch as a fireball flies beneath his bent legs towards the beetle. Beautiful panel. 
Beetle screams. You again? Spidey replies. Naturally, Bump. You don't think you can just wish me away, do you? While the torch, as thick-headed as the Brandex kid thinks, Spider-Man has come between us again. Is he trying to help me or protect the beetle? My nanny used to tell me, you see what you want to see, when the answer was right in front of me and I wanted something more complex. If a giant chunk of ceiling was flying towards your face and now it's not, if you see the kid made you follow him to the man who snatched up your dame, if you take five seconds to pull your head from your bum, you'd see that Spidey is doing you all the favors and you're doing him none. Back to Beetle, realizing the marvelous tag team is too unpredictable, flies off again, shooting around the nearest corner in flight. His idea of handling both of them at the same time out the window, he thinks he needs to get away and make a new plan. Torch shoots through the roof. He thinks, time enough to worry about Webhead later. Now, I've got to head the Beetle off. As Spidey races to a window and is scaling a sheer wall thinking, he glided upstairs. I've got to reach him before he gets to the roof. Both teenagers on a manhunt, they're not letting this guy get away. 19 opens to the torch flying through a wall melted by his heat stage right, and Spidey swinging through a window stage left. Both feet raised, and the beetle, he's in between both. His head snapping from left to right so fast it looks like he has four pink goggle eyes. Johnny screams, now I've got you. Spidey shouts, look out, hothead, he's mine. The beetle shouts, torch, Spider-Man, oh no. But Spidey and the torch are all the way in sync now. They scream, oh yes. yes. Together, delivering a spidey foot and a torchy judo chop. There are no chops in judo. So? And Beetle is in panic mode. He makes one final, futile break for the door, screaming. I've got to get away. I won't be beaten again. I won't return to jail. I won't. But Spidey, on his side, laying on the floor, manages to get his left arm up and webs the Beetle's left knee, stopping the man in his tracks, or air currents, or whatever we're calling it. The next panel, Torch crafts a net made of fire, saying... Stopping him is only part of it, Spidey. I'll create a cozy little fire cell for him until the fight's knocked out of him. And surrounds the beetle in the flame prison. As the beetle thinks even in his asbestos gear, he's trapped. All that fireproofing and no tag team partner? How sad. Finally, a short time later. Johnny's got his arms around his main squeeze, staring over his shoulder at Spidey, who's crawling up onto the roof with one knee down beside a webbed up beetle, staring up at them. Dory points at Spidey, and instead of thanking the wall crawler, she says, Johnny, aren't you going to do something about that horrid Spider-Man? I still think he was in league with the Beetle. Ungrateful, thy name is Evans. And Spidey's catching the vibe. On 20, we get a long horizontal, Spidey in its center with both fists clenched, and all around him, we see headshots. Stage right, Betty Brent with her eyes closed in silent anger, Jameson giving him a side eye in front of the two men that took off in fear at the sight of Spidey earlier in this issue. Dory pointing at Spidey as Johnny Storm eyes him suspiciously. In stage left, Johnny, in contrast, holding Dory's shoulders, she holding his in a lover's embrace. And next to that, the torch flames on in the fire heart he crafted earlier. Inside, four people smiling. And if Spidey's not thinking, Jameson probably hates me more than ever now because I haven't done any work as Peter Parker for him lately. Benny is angry at me again, and as usual, I can't think of any way to explain. Is this my fate? Am I destined to go through life as a professional phone guy? Why must I be a costume superpowered sad sack? Especially when the torch, who's no better than I in any respect, gets all the glory, all the praise, and even the girl. For him, life is one big happy ending, and he's not wrong. Done mulling over his woes, Spidey sprays a web line and leaps from the rooftop. Dory telling her bow that he's getting away. But Johnny, flamed out, the beetle at his feet replies, I couldn't stop him if I wanted to. 
That last fight warmed my flame out for a while. Dory, her hands on Johnny's shoulders, asks what type of person he thinks Spider-Man is, and Johnny says it's hot and cold. Sometimes I think he's terrific. Sometimes I want to knock his block off. But he thinks, much like Flash did when Spidey saved Liz Allen's life in the Museum of Natural History, way back in Amazing Spider-Man number six, that he could understand if Dory fell for Spidey, but Peter Parker? He doesn't get it. Because much like Flash Thompson, he doesn't think kindness and humility are strength. He'll get there though. Don't lose faith in the hothead. He's from Long Island after all. It takes time. Spidey landing on a chimney stack staring down at what I presume is the East River, because Spidey loves the East River, says that this is what he needs, a chance to clear his thoughts. And clear his thoughts, he does. I wonder if this world will ever acclaim me as it does others. Or am I always to go through life shunned and loathed? If only I could reveal my secret identity. If I can let people realize who I am. The camera zooms out and Spidey is now a lonely obelisk atop the smokestack. His head lowered, his shoulders hunched, speaking his final thought out loud. But I just don't dare! The issue closes with a caption box. If you enjoyed Petey and his pals as much as we hope you did, tune in again next-ish for lots more of the same. Happy web spinning. And we're out! Spidey and Torch were to work in this one, did they not? I love that they both secretly envy each other, but don't realize they face many of the same insecurities. I also always enjoy when the torch shows up because you know Pete's going to feel inadequate about the love torch seems to always get without trying. But Peter Parker, ladies man that he's growing to be apparently, makes all of these self-professed and people-professed big shots feel inadequate for reasons they can't quite grasp. Goes to show that great power isn't only how much you can lift or how hard you can hit. It's also the ability to make people feel safe and respected in your presence. And Pete may not fully realize it yet, but he's that guy. That's the main episode this week. And that's true. That's the main episode. But there is more me and my friend Pete available for your listening pleasure right now. If you support this show on patreon.com slash HSPP, patrons get a bonus show every week where I run through comic books from all over the multiverse of comics, past and present, from Marvel to DC to all points in between. This week, we're running through Broken Trinity number one from Top Cow. So we're back to witnessing Sarah Pazzini swinging the Witchblade in a tale that sets her world on a new and dangerous course. The darkness is involved, the Angelus is involved, and two ancient relics rise up from the dust they were covered under for millennia to turn the Top Cow Trinity on its ear. If we've got comics, we've got history, and I'll be your guide through it all. Head over to patreon.com HSPP and sign up to the Key Keeper or High Council tiers now to learn what happens when three becomes four, then five. Next week, the circus is back in town and Jameson's back to running off at the mouth in a tale that mixes assault and battery and juggling and fine art. A hilarious story if I do say so myself and I always say so myself. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, a special thanks to the home team. That's the right minders. The Big Three, The Key Keepers, and The High Council. Parker's Eleven. This podcast is completely listener supported and your support keeps this crazy train on the tracks. I'm truly grateful you keep coming back and more grateful you allow me to be the conductor. You got questions? Send them to me and my friend Pete at gmail.com and I'll go digging for the answers. All that said, that's all that said. Please like, please comment, please share, please take care. Please think of the world and be true to yourself. And remember, with great power, come on, you know the rest. Make sure you're being responsible. I'm out of here.